0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with writer, environmentalist, and climate change activist, Bill McKibben, who's been warning of the impending climate crisis for decades since his seminal book, The End of Nature, published in 1989. He talks about the increasing incidence of devastating hurricanes, tornadoes, drought, wildfires sweeping the country, and how the president's Build Back Better bill has some of the most promising climate change initiatives ever put forward. Lori Robertson also checks in, the managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Bill McKibben, here on Conversations on Healthcare.
1: We're speaking today with Bill McKibben, environmentalist, author, and renowned climate change activist. He's the author of a dozen books on climate crisis, from his seminal work in 1989, The End of Nature, to his most recent falter, both of which explore the deadly link between climate change and health.
2: Bill is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar at Middlebury College. He's the founder of 350.org and thirdact.org, dedicated to confronting the causes of global warming. Bill, we welcome you to Conversations on Healthcare today.
3: Well, Margaret, Mark, what a pleasure to get to join you both in this community that you've created. Well,
1: thanks so much, Bill. And as you say, we're between a rock and a hot place. And, and we're witnessing that the climate crisis play out in real time, back-to-back, hurricanes, devastating entire regions. We have mega droughts, massive wildfires, all happening simultaneously in this country. And against that backdrop, Congress is back in Washington, taking up President Biden's $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which includes the most significant climate change legislation ever considered. What's so groundbreaking about this legislation that President Biden just called today code red for humanity, that could have meaningful impact on climate change in a way that's never been done before in the United States?
3: Well, the first thing that's so novel about it, Mark, is simply that it exists. The US Congress has known about climate change for 30 years and they've done zero, zilch. We've never passed real climate legislation. The closest we came was in 2009, when there was something called cap and trade, and it never even reached a vote in the U.S. Senate. So this would be novel simply by its existence. But beyond that, it's really the first piece of legislation that even begins to address climate change at something like the scale of the problem. We've delayed so long now, and things have gotten so far out of control, that it's going to take a real effort. And this is this is a uh, down payment on that effort anyway, and hopefully enough to really start jumpstarting the transition to renewable energy that we desperately need.
2: Well Bill, you noticed in a recent article that it's not the heat, it's the humanity, which I really uh, appreciated uh, and say that climate change and pollution cause an estimated five million global deaths per year. But the scientists say global warming poses a far greater risk to human health than the pandemics. I keep having in my mind an image of the doomsday clock, you know, that we used to look at around the potential for nuclear war. But climate change now being right up there on the doomsday clock. What's the true cost to human health that we're seeing even today?
3: This is such an interesting question, Margaret, because you can answer it in two ways. One, there's a big cost to human health. When you have endless series of uh, fires, floods, storms, and an endless increase in the number of people on the move around the world, because the place where they lived for generations no longer sustains life. I mean, we're seeing even in the most rich parts of the entire world. I mean, in Manhattan, people were drowning in basement apartments when the remnants of Hurricane Ida swept through. So you can imagine what the toll is like in the poorest parts of the world is that the thing that causes climate change, fossil fuels, burning coal, oil and gas, also kills people quite directly. The pollution that's produced when it's combusted, not the carbon dioxide that doesn't really do much to us directly, but the carbon monoxide and the particulates and the other forms of pollution that come when you burn fossil fuel. Uh, There was a study this year indicating that it's killing about 8.7 million people a year more than HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. It's about one death in five on this planet. So getting rid of fossil fuel not only helps us ward off the very worst of climate change and the death toll that comes with it, it also has immediate payoffs in terms of human health, just from what we're breathing every day. There's no reason not to do it now. The scientists and engineers have worked their miracles, and wind power and solar power are now the cheapest forms of power on planet Earth. In a rational world, we would be devoting all our energy to spreading that miracle just as fast as we could.
1: Bill, I want to pick up the, on the thread that you identified that really the vulnerable population all across the globe is being impacted. And we see it play out here, right in our own uh, organization, Community Health Center. How do we leverage our healthcare delivery and our public health systems to mitigate, I would say even prevent the worst harm of climate change. Is there a greater role for the healthcare industry to
3: play? Yes, of course. One of the things that the pandemic should have taught us, I think, I mean, there were a bunch of things like physical reality is real, so take it seriously. But clearly one of the most important is that that solidarity really matters, that we need to be taking care of each other in serious ways. You know, the three of us have kind of grown up under the political shadow of Ronald Reagan, who convinced a generation of Americans that government was the problem, not the solution. You know, the laugh line in his speeches was always the nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But it turns out the scariest words are things like, we've run out of ventilators, or the hillside behind your house just caught on fire. And you don't solve those things with market solutions. You solve them with people working together and to solve problems. And so we're at one of those moments, and this is really reflected in this uh, $3.5 trillion bill that the Biden administration is putting forward. Because part of it is devoted to infrastructure, infrastructure of the kind that, you know, the solar panels, the electric car chargers that we need to deal with the climate crisis. But another large part of it is IS DIRECTED AT WHAT'S CALLED HUMAN INFRASTRUCTURE, AT THE EDUCATION AND HEALTH CARE POLICIES THAT ALLOW US TO BUILD A SOCIETY THAT'S STABLE, EQUITABLE, RESILIENT ENOUGH TO BEGIN TO HANDLE WHAT'S COMING AT IT. AND ONE WITHOUT THE OTHER DOES NOT MAKE SENSE. I, I WAS OFF WITH MY FRIEND BERNIE SANDERS A WEEK AGO mm-hmm. GIVING SOME SPEECHES ACROSS uh, OUR HOME STATE OF Vermont, AND HE SAID AT ONE POINT SOMETHING THAT STRUCK IN MY MIND. HE SAID, We're not just going to build bridges so that people can sleep under them. We have to take care of all parts of our infrastructure needs.
2: Well, that's a powerful image. You know, I I want to congratulate you uh, for spearheading one of the largest divestiture campaigns in modern history with a recent win, Harvard being the latest uh, institution to divest fossil fuels from its portfolio. I'm thinking of all the work that's been done over the last 30 years, you had the, the series Coalition and the Global Reporting Initiative and lots of folks that focused on reporting to change corporate behavior. But this really may actually change the way the fossil fuel industry works. And what do you think this kind of economic strategy is going to do in terms of exerting pressure on the fossil fuel industry? Will things be different?
3: Well, the reason we undertook this divestment campaign, which has become the largest anti-corporate campaign perhaps in history, we're at about $15 trillion now in portfolios and endowments that have divested. The reason we undertook it is because the fossil fuel industry has been a malign force on this planet. They have orchestrated a 30-year scheme of denial and disinformation THAT KEPT US LOCKED IN A COMPLETELY STERILE DEBATE ABOUT WHETHER OR NOT GLOBAL WARMING WAS REAL. Mm -hmm. A a DEBATE WE NOW KNOW FROM GREAT INVESTIGATIVE (laughs) REPORTING THAT BOTH SIDES, uh, THE FOSSIL FUEL INDUSTRY AND SCIENTISTS, KNEW THE ANSWER TO BACK WHEN IT BEGAN. IT'S JUST ONE OF THOSE SIDES WAS WILLING TO LIE. AND THAT LIE HAS COST US 30 YEARS THAT WE ARE NEVER GETTING BACK. Mm -hmm. Uh, THE THING TO REALIZE ABOUT CLIMATE CHANGE IS Unlike other public policy issues, it's a timed test. If we don't get it right right now, then there's no chance anyone in the future will. In our society, we've been debating national health care, say, as long as I've been alive. And I think it's a tragedy, we've never done it. And lots of people have gone bankrupt and lots of people have died. But when we finally get around to doing it, it won't be harder to do because we delayed. Climate change isn't like that. Once you melt the Arctic, no one's got a plan to refreeze it. And it's the fossil fuel industry that has cost us that time and that continues to try and delay. So any strategy that weakens their financial and political standing is helpful in advancing the rational work that scientists, engineers are doing to point us in a new direction. Their willingness to hold on to their business model, even at the cost of breaking the planet, probably puts even the tobacco industry in the shade as the single worst example of corporate malfeasance of all time. So uh, that's why that divestment movement has now gotten not just Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge and the Mm -hmm. University of California behind it, but also even the Pope and the Queen of England have come out for divestment. (laughs) You know, short of getting Beyonce on board, I, I don't know what else we're supposed to do at this point.
1: We're speaking today with Bill McKibben, a writer, environmentalist and renowned climate activist. He's the author of a dozen books on climate change, including the End of nature and more recently falter. You know, Bill, the Trump administration during that we slid backwards. We withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord. We left the WHO. Drilling and pipeline production increased. Glacier melt and deforestation, as you were mentioning, progressed at such a dramatic pace. Uh, the UN recently released a report stating without a doubt, climate change is indeed man made and immediate action is required. You say that uh, action uh, is going to require organizing. So how do we organize in a collective way to meet these persistent challenges of climate change? You've talked about one initiative, which is investing in alternatives to uh, fossil fuel. But what other ways can you lay out that we might organize?
3: Superb question, Mark. The two good things that have happened in the last decade are, one, that scientists and engineers have dropped the cost of renewable energy 90 percent. And the other is that these big global movements have arisen to demand change. I got to work on sort of the first iteration of that when we formed 350.org about a decade ago. And it's gone on to organize in every country on earth except North Korea. Now there are people flooding into this area. So we have in Europe, Extinction Rebellion. We have the wonderful post-college students from the Sunrise Movement who have brought us the Green New Deal. And we have most beautifully and movingly, I think, the high school and junior high school students who probably are the most active of all. Everybody knows about Greta Thunberg and they should, she's wonderful, but she would be the first to say that the best news is there are 10,000 Greta Thunbergs and they have 10 million followers demanding that we pay attention to their future. So those kind of movements are crucial. Individual action, you can't make the climate math work now one Tesla at a time, one vegan dinner at a time. The most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual, to join together with uh, with others in movements large enough to change the political and economic ground rules. And so that's why for those of us who aren't so young, those of us who are over 60, we've just launched this new effort called Third Act that will allow experienced Americans to play their part supporting young people in this fight. These generations, many of us had a pretty good first act we were witness to or participant in some profound cultural and political transformations. The women's movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. Perhaps our second act taken as a whole was more devoted to being consumers than citizens. BUT WE'VE NOW EMERGED IN OUR THIRD ACT WITH LOTS OF SKILLS, MORE THAN OUR SHARE OF RESOURCES, AND SOME GRANDKIDS, AND HENCE REAL REASON NOT TO WANT TO LEAVE THE WORLD A WORSE PLACE THAN WE FOUND IT, WHICH IS GOING TO BE OUR LEGACY. WE'RE GOING TO BE THE FIRST GENERATION THAT CAN CARRY THAT CURSE, UNLESS WE GET OUR ACT TOGETHER VERY QUICKLY.
2: Well, I think you're uh, absolutely right, and one of those many uh, lessons we learned along the way was don't whine, organize. Um, but we come from many different spheres of influence, and I think we want to press the levers on all of those spheres. And I've been uh, so cheered by seeing what a trend there is among in healthcare, and we're very engaged in training the next generation of healthcare providers. But a real trend around, among the teaching institutions to include climate change. In their curriculum, you know, thinking uh, back to th- I'll add physicians for social responsibility to the list of groups. Uh, that you named there, you know, was tremendously effective at raising awareness about the threat of extinction by their right. war nurses are still the number one most trusted profession in the United States uh, when nurses are speaking to the issue of climate change, what are your thoughts about the healthcare? sector, the healthcare workforce as another lever in this act of influencing both policy and politics, but also individual and community and state level behavior. Is there anybody doing that well that you would give a shout out to?
3: There are people doing it very well, uh, from the National Nurses Union on down, people who are working hard, healthcare without harm. There are a lot of organizations that have taken this seriously. You know, medicine is one of the few professions left in our world It has no choice but just to deal with brute reality. It's in a better place than almost anyone else to understand what's going on. In literal terms, the planet is running a fever now. And that requires all of the rest of us become the antibodies that find the cause of that infection and fight it. That's what organizing is. And doctors, nurses, other health professionals are exquisitely well position to do that. Though you wouldn't always know it from watching the craziness around COVID and vaccinations and things, yeah. people still, by and large, do trust doctors and nurses because they take good care of us, by and large.
1: Bill, you you described the man-made ecological disaster of, of climate change as a moral catastrophe. But you say there's a cause for optimism. First, the, there's a dramatic reduction in the cost of renewables. And second, a growing movement of climate activism uh, by young people, like, as you've mentioned, uh, Greta Thunberg. I, I'm just wondering, in, in terms of your pitch, if you will, or the, the, the message that you're sending, there, there's this place between motivation and despair when we think about climate change. And I'm wondering what that right message is, because uh, so often we you hear people come away from these and just say, there's nothing I can do. And then there's that point where motiv- you can motivate them to move forward. Uh, what have you found in your own experience as you uh, are out on the stump talking to people, uh, trying to motivate them, but also recognizing that there's uh, a, a real disaster uh, currently taking place in our globe? But how do you find that right that, that I think right the problem point?
3: Is, I think the problem is less finding the balance between optimism and despair. I think the real problem is that climate change seems so large Mm -hmm. and we seem so small in comparison that it becomes hard for us to imagine that we can make a real difference. And that's why I I think the key word that that some people use is agency, the sense that we have the power to make a difference. We only have it when we come together. But when we come together, when we work in these movements, people find it not just powerful, they find it an extraordinary relief, including psychologically, to be engaged in this fight. Now, we do not know how this fight's going to come out, you know, uh, and that's different from other causes that we've been engaged in. Dr. King used to say at the end of speeches, the moral, or the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends that's toward strange. justice. Yeah. That was a comforting words for the brave people in the civil rights movement. What it meant was, this may take a while, but we're going to win. Well, Mark, the arc of the physical universe is short, and it bends toward heat. If we don't win soon, then we never win. And that's why, you know, that's why some of us end up going to jail, uh, which is seems crazy, but it's what it's taken often to get these things done. Um, Not everybody has to go to jail, but everybody has to be Outside their comfort zone, because the planet is a mile outside its comfort zone. What we're doing so far is not enough, and so we need to step up our game.
2: You know, we've had a uh, frontline seat, all of us, uh, and Mark and I, true as well, on the COVID pandemic uh, as we saw it descend in our communities and really mobilize the troops to mount a statewide effort around vaccines and, and testing. Uh, and engaged in many conversations with uh, our staff, but with people in general in the communities and and realized, probably should have seen it coming, there are quite a few uh, deniers out there about the reality of COVID, the impact of COVID, uh, the whole vaccine controversy. And when we think about uh, climate, uh, there's the climate deniers too. And they're not all in the fossil fuel industry. They're pretty widespread, I think, throughout the country. But it would be hard to have uh, watched the news over the last four to six weeks and not at least allow for the possibility that something really bad was going on here in terms of climate change. I'm wondering what you're seeing and what are polls telling us uh, when you look across the country, is there a shift beginning to this being more commonly accepted that this is real and we need to do something about it?
3: Yes, over the last three or four years, there's been a decisive shift, Margaret. and the polling now shows that seventy percent of Americans understand that we face a real dilemma with climate change.
2: Seventy
3: percent is great. Seventy percent. In a country as polarized as ours, seventy percent is good, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yes, their deniers remain, but they're not going to change because their beliefs aren't rooted in science. They're just rooted in ideology. And if you'd spent the last, you know, 30 years, you know, marinating yourself in Rush Limbaugh, you, you wouldn't be able to think clearly about. THIS KIND OF STUFF EITHER. I MEAN, YOU KNOW, IDEOLOGY IS A DANGEROUS DRUG SOMETIMES. Um, IT GETS IN THE WAY of, OF REALITY. BUT THE PROBLEM IS NOT DENIERS. THE PROBLEM IS THAT OF THAT 70%, NOT ENOUGH PEOPLE ARE ACTIVE IN mm-hmm. THIS FIGHT. Mm-hmm. WE'VE GOT TO TAKE SOME PERCENTAGE OF THOSE PEOPLE AND TURN THEM INTO REAL BATTLERS. Uh, AND, and uh, YOU KNOW, COVID IS INSTRUCTIVE HERE. Uh, I think we're doing better as time goes on Mm -hmm. on that fight. Um, One difference is, happily, there's no trillion-dollar industry that wants us all to die from COVID, you know. Sadly, there is a trillion-dollar industry that wants us to keep our current energy business model intact, and that's why it's been taking us 30 years to overcome the disinformation schemes of the fossil fuel industry, but we're getting there. The only thing that worries me is time. The scientists have told us the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their last report said that we had until 2030 to have emissions, cut emissions in half around the globe, or we would not be able to reach the targets we set in Paris just five or six years ago. 2030 is now eight years and change away. We're all experienced enough to know that our systems are not geared for rapid change. So we're going to have to gear them for rapid change. That's our job, to force the spring here.
1: You know, let me pull a question on on the Paris Climate Accord. Candidate uh, Joe Biden said that the first act that he would do, one of the first acts, was to rejoin the Paris uh, Climate Accord, which he saw as a paramount step really to address global climate change. But activists like yourself say more must be done tell us what the strengths and weaknesses of the paris accord are so people can have a, a broader view
3: even when we signed the paris climate accords we knew and the president obama said at the time that it wasn't strong enough even if we met all the promises in the paris climate accords that countries made the temperature would still rise about three degrees celsius so five six degrees fahrenheit which is too much we can't deal with that and that's why everybody is aimed at strengthening the ambition of countries. And the crucial meeting is in November in Glasgow, the most important climate meeting, at least since Paris. John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, is now our climate envoy, demonstrating, I think, how seriously the Biden administration has taken this. And he needs to be able to go to Glasgow to negotiate with something in his pocket. That something is that $3.5 trillion bill before the U.S. Senate. If it passes, then he'll be able to say with a straight face, the U.S. has begun to commit serious resources to this fight. We're moving up our timetable, China, India. We need you to move up yours. If he goes there with nothing in his pocket, then that's not going to be a productive meeting. And that eight years is suddenly going to seem even shorter than it seems now.
2: We've been speaking today with Bill McKibben, environmentalist, author, and renowned climate change activist. You can learn more about his groundbreaking work by going to BillMcKibben.com, and I'm going to spell it M-C-K-I-B-B-E-N, or follow him on Twitter at Bill McKibben. Bill, we want to thank you for shouting truth to power during decades of climate activism, for informing our world about the complex nature of climate crisis, and for inspiring generations of new activists. And thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations
3: on Healthcare. Well, I've enjoyed it enormously. And thanks to both of you for your leadership, especially your leadership in building this informed community. That's what it takes.
4: The majority of United States residents who have not been vaccinated against COVID-19 are white, according to available state data and survey research. That contradicts Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's claim that in most states, black residents are, quote, the biggest group of unvaccinated people. The Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonpartisan health issues organization, reported on comparable data from 40 states. As of August 16th, the percentage of people who had received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine was 50% for whites, 45% for Hispanics, and 40% for Blacks. Because Blacks and Hispanics make up a much smaller portion of the overall U.S. population than whites, those percentages indicate that, in raw numbers, far more white people remain unvaccinated against the disease. But Patrick, in an August 19 appearance on Fox News, falsely implied that it was unvaccinated Black people who are responsible for the resurgence of the coronavirus in his state and around the rest of the country. In responding to critics who fault the policies of Republican Governor Greg Abbott's administration for the recent increase in COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in Texas, Patrick said, quote, Well, the biggest group in most states are African-Americans who have not been vaccinated. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll conducted in July found that among unvaccinated adults, 57 percent were white. 20% were Hispanic, and 13% were Black. As for Patrick's suggestion that Black people are driving cases up in Texas, it was Hispanic and White residents who accounted for 37% and 32% of the state's nearly 100,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 during the week of August 20th. Black residents made up nearly 15% of the cases, and that's my fact check for this week.
2: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. It's a known fact that the current generation of American children is more obese than any previous generation. And at a Washington, D.C. community health center, Unity Healthcare, a pediatrician was in a quandary over how to tackle this growing health scourge. He began with a unique solution targeted to a teen patient whose body mass index, or BMI, had already landed her in the obese category. What he did was write a prescription for getting off the bus one stop earlier on her way to school, which made her walk the equivalent of one mile a day. Dr. Robert Tsar of Unity Community Health Center understood that without motivation to move more, kids just might not do it. The patient has moved from the obese down to the overweight category, certainly an improvement. He then decided to expand this program by working with the D.C. Parks Department, mapping out all the potential walks and play area kids have within the city's parks. How to get there, parking, is parking available if someone's going to drive, bike racks. There's a section on pets. Park safety? Dr. Czar writes park prescriptions on a special prescription pad in English and Spanish with the words RX for outdoor activity and a schedule slot that asks... When and where will you play outside this week? I like to listen and find out what it is my patients like to do and then gauge the parks I prescribe based on their interests, based on the things they're willing to do. Ultimately, Dr. Zar says he wants to make the prescription for outdoor activity adaptable for all of his patients and adaptable for pediatricians around the country. Rx for Outdoor Activity partnering clinicians, park administrators, patients, and the families to move more, yielding fitter, healthier young people. Now that's a bright idea.
1: You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Flinter.
1: Peace and health.
0: Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradiochc at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.